Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the ISDN line from the studios at Clemson University is author Ron Rash, longtime friend, New York Times bestselling author, and he has a new novel out, The Risen. And so, Ron, welcome back to the journal. Always great to be with you. You you spent your whole life in North Carolina. You did your undergraduate and your graduate work there. And now, after all of your work, your poetry, your essays, your novels, Ron Rash, you could teach anywhere in this country at any fancy school you wanted to, and yet you've chosen to stay at Western Carolina, and you still teach basic undergraduate courses. Why? I, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm one of those writers uh, who has felt, in the same way Eudora Welty and Faulkner felt, that I had to stay where, uh, my, where I'd grown up to, to, uh, to write because I felt like there was enough there that I would never exhaust it. But also just that I love the North Carolina mountains so much, I don't think I could live anywhere else and really be happy. Well, let's, let's move on now into The Risen. It is set in the hippie days of the 1960s. Western North Carolina discovers a girl with flowers in her hair, if you, if you will, the Jefferson, Jefferson Airplane. Let's talk about how you came into that. Well, it was a, a very, I, I, I was 16 in 1969, living in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. And I would turn on the TV or listen to the radio, and so much seemed to be happening in the country, I'm, both good and bad things. You know, there were some very serious riots during that time. A lot of turmoil. Vietnam was still, you know, really, we we're in the midst of that. But also this strange, exotic kind of movement where uh, people were, you know, scantily clad and flower power, free love. And it seemed it seemed to be happening everywhere <laughs> except Boiling Springs. And I felt almost as if uh, I were on an island and uh, occasionally I would get a... Uh, uh, a message in a bottle, and, and those came usually uh, listening to a radio station uh, and hearing this music uh, about that world. Uh, you know, wearing flowers in your hair. <laughs> you know, go to San Francisco and 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 all of that music, and and just as I say, it was almost like messages in a bottle because it seemed to be so alien to the world I, I was living in, which seemed, at least on the surface, not to change. I, I can remember in 1969, uh, one of the funniest things that happened was uh, the county newspaper had an article where a hippie had been spotted on Highway 74. And the way, way it was described, you would have thought it was you know, like an albino wildebeest had wandered into the county. And uh, the article described the minivan or minibus he was driving. There were actual flowers painted on it. Uh, this guy had long hair and a beard and... You know, uh, and and just that kind of kind of, just that you know, once again, that just being in a place where uh, it seemed like nothing was happening. But then, as you say, it did. And what I wanted to do in the Risen was in a in a once the summer of 1969, uh, a sense that uh, I wanted almost everything good and hopeful. Uh, to kind of come into this community, and particularly to, to our narrator Eugene, but also the the darker aspects of the '60s, because in 1969 uh, that was the year where it seemed like everything was so happening so beautifully, and this idea of peace and love. But then you get the Manson family, uh, you get the rock concert at Altamont where uh, someone's killed, and we start to see the, the the underbelly, the darker aspects of this this cultural change. Yeah, and I wanted all that to happen in just essentially three months to uh, Eugene. So Eugene, your young protagonist, and he is he is young. He's sixteen. Yeah, I found his family situation just. I, I can understand how he turned out the way he did, frankly. And, and I think we can talk about his family a little bit because that, without giving giving things away, and you want to you want to carry that about his mom and dad, and for gosh sakes, don't forget granddad. Yeah. Uh, well, I I really wanted to write a book where our sympathies for the characters would be complex. I mean, uh, certainly uh, our feelings about them, and I hope at different times of the book, you know, those feelings are different. And and one thing's been interesting about the book is to see who's 
who feels, you know, some readers feel more sympathy for Ligia, some people uh, feel more sympathy for Eugene, and, and some even for Bill, the brother. But, yeah, uh, the, the, the boys come out of a, a really kind of terrible family situation. Their father's died when, uh, I think, Eugene is very young. He only has one memory of his father. And uh, they are raised by their mother, but also by their grandfather, who is... Uh, a monster, I guess. Uh, he's he's probably uh, right up there with Serena as far as uh, my villains, I would say. And uh, uh, I thought one thing I thought would be interesting in the book is how do boys who come up grow up in an abusive situation, uh, particularly because of the domineering grandfather. Uh, how how why does one come come through it okay or seemingly okay and one doesn't and. And but I think you're right. I think Eugene, what happens to him? It's an interesting question. How much is his is it his responsibility, and how much is it uh, what he had to endure, uh, particularly as a child and adolescent? Well, you, you you talked about how people might change their affection or loyalties in 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 reading the book. There are times when I thought Eugene was really neat, particularly before he discovered the 1960s. Um, and there are other times when I wanted to slap him upside the head and tell him to get his head, you know, come back to reality. Brother Bill was so, you know, older brothers are difficult to deal with, Ron. I don't know if you've got one. Well, I, I am the older brother, so <laughs> <laughs> my my younger my brother younger brother could probably uh, tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes older brothers feel like they they need to be a semi parent and tell you what to do and how you got to handle things, even if they go astray. Um, you're not supposed to do that. But the one character that I never changed my opinion of, and that was the grandfather, because when I was growing up, my grandfather Edgar was the most important person in my life. He taught me how to garden. He taught me how to tell stories. Um, and my dad worked all the time, So, and my grandfather lived with us. So he was as kind and gentle a person as you'd ever want to meet. And to have this monster grandfather to these boys, that was just, well, I guess I thought most grandfathers were kind and gentle. Yeah, and, and I would agree. Uh, I mean, certainly mine were, but... I thought that would make him even more disturbing because I think most of us think of our grandparents very positively, and to have one like this, I think, uh, you know, it disturbed me writing it, and it, I think I certainly hoped in, that it would disturb the reader. I mean, I wanted him to be a, a really malevolent force in the book, and also I thought making him the town doctor would give him uh, a kind of power, particularly at that time period, that would also make him even more frightening because uh, I, I certainly had doctors in my hometown of Bowling Springs who were wonderful people, but um, I remember even when I was an adolescent thinking, uh, as it, when, they walked, when uh, they walked down the streets, the two doctors in town, how they would perceive people differently because they would know the secrets, the secrets that only a doctor might know in a community like that. And that gave them, and certainly in the case of the grandfather in the Risen, gave him power over people at the bank, over local law enforcement, and sometimes he didn't even have to ask. Yeah, he, I, I thought that, in a sense, that kind of abuse of that kind of trust and power would, would make him, as I say, more powerful, but also more frightening. Yeah. And, of course, Eugene and his brother Bill and their mother are stuck in this little town because after her husband died, she wanted to move away, and she actually had a job, but granddad stepped in, got the job canceled, and threatened her, blackmailed her with false information from the bank, with the cooperation of the banker, of course, that she could never leave town. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have to worry about whether or not he was going to be evil. From It didn't take long for him to become a real <laughs> ogre in the story. Yeah. Yeah. And that continues. He he clearly was somebody who had to be in charge of things, and it was his way or the highway. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, you know, yeah, the, the mother, those moments when she does try to fight against it. And to me, she's a very complex character because 
she's trying to look do what's best for her children, and she knows certainly the negative force that the grandfather is, yet at the same time, uh, the need as a woman who has not many skills or has has not been able to use them, uh, knowing that if she leaves, uh, she she may not be able to keep these kids in clothes and food. And, of course, granddad's a doctor. The son, the father that's dead, was a doctor. And these both, both of these boys, Bill and Eugene, are expected to be doctors. Yeah, and, and I think that, once again, is the, the grandfather's kind of reaching that he can even shape uh, what they will become, certainly, and or his attempts to. It doesn't work so much with Eugene. The mother, though, when she looks at Eugene, she introduces him to art and literature, which, of course, grandfather thinks is degenerate. But eventually, he decides he wants to be a writer. Yeah, uh, and and I think in a way that's the mother sees that as a kind of victory. Uh, I mean, she's had such uh, little power against the grandfather, but I think uh, by taking Eugene in, in that direction or encouraging it, and actually for both the boys, but I think obviously Eugene's the one that uh, uh, reacts most positively to it. Uh, yeah, just showing her uh, him another way of looking at the world. All right, let's 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 get into Eugene and Bill meet this nymph from Florida, and I'll let you set the stage. Yeah, it's... it's it's 1969, and um, they're fishing and swimming in a small, in a stream, a pretty large stream. And uh, they see, uh, they meet, end up meeting a, a young woman uh, uh, named Ligia. And I chose that name for two reasons. One, it brings up uh, Edgar Allan Poe's short story, which is about a woman who dies and then comes back to life, which I think felt, you know, fit the book. But also, Ligia means queen of the mermaids, and that, and and also as she, you know, in one language, queen of the mermaids. The other, she's a siren, you know, calling to the, uh, you know, bringing people to their doom. So I thought that fit in 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 a an interesting way. All of the above work with the story, the the queen of the mermaids, because it's, you know, here here are these two mountain boys, they're in their favorite fishing hole, and. Eugene looks off and he thought, thinks he sees this flash of skin down the creek somewhere. And he goes to investigate, and eventually they do meet up with Ligia. She, she dodges him the first time. Yeah. But then she keeps coming back. And uh, Bill, the straight arrow who never would go astray, is the first one to succumb to her siren call. Yeah, and, and he does. And, and that's... Uh... Uh, kind of an interesting moment because it starts to set up a conflict between the two brothers that's really going to, uh, I think, be uh, crucial, not only to the novel, but within the novel, the, their lives, the way they diverge. Well, it, it's it's kind of interesting that, that Brother Bill actually kind of helps Ligia seduce Eugene. He he does it like Bill and Ligia have already had have already had their fling, and Ligia's kind of flirting with with Eugene, and Bill sees things are going to happen, so he wants to make sure that that Eugene understands there are certain precautions he has to take. There's the older brother telling him what to do, and yes, yeah. she yeah. does seduce him. He not only gets drunk, but he has his first sexual relationship. All in quick succession. Yeah, so he's kind of you know, plunged headlong headlong into the 1960s with the alcohol and and soon drugs uh, and sex. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's it's this is a part of the story that you. I mean, you just you talk about he fell into it and he did. And at this point, I think everybody, at least I did. I was already into the story, but I really fell into it here. I couldn't tell what was going to happen. But Ligia is a siren, but she's she's not a sweet mermaid. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's tough. Uh, she, but she's had to be uh, when we find out more about her life and her situation growing up. Uh, she can be rather ruthless at times, uh, and actually exploitive. Uh, and I think her motivations 
I hope are at times complex, but I think one thing is clear that uh, she's using particularly Eugene to get the drugs that she wants. And you folks might wonder, where, how's Eugene going to get drugs for her in Western North Carolina in 1969? Well, if your grandfather's a doctor <laughs> and you're, you, you clean up there in the afternoons and on Saturdays, you, uh, you have access. I mean, today things are very well controlled, but I mean, back then they just, the doctor had his medicines in a closet and the boys had access to that, right? Yeah, and uh, that, uh, the abuse of that uh, and, and the repercussions are great. Well, the drugs are really for her, right? I mean, he. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eugene's, Eugene likes that beer. Yeah, unfortunately, too much. It is Ligia possibly, in a way, Eugene's drug. I mean, he's got he's got the alcohol, and it, it's clear by the end of the summer he is he is a teenage alcoholic. Yeah, I, I think she is in a way his drug. I mean, he uh, his reaction to her, uh, the power of it, and uh, almost uh, you know taking him into this transcendent world that he had never you know been part of. I, I think certainly he is kind of intoxicated. Uh, with her and and with a lot of what he sees or thinks he sees in her uh, that, you know, he doesn't quite understand, I think, in the way Bill does, that uh, Ligia's motivations might be more complex than he realizes at the time. Well, Bill certainly goes along with it for a while. I mean, he's he's not Simon Pure by any... any, And, you know, that's interesting with two brothers and one girl, but then he changes because his girlfriend comes to town and he decides he better be straight and narrow. Yeah, he does, and I think that's when, once again, the novel gets complex, and for the first time, I think Eugene feels like he has a little power uh, in their relationship because it's, as you know, maybe where he starts to feel like he's a little more worldly than his brother. Well, and his, and his, boys do and compare themselves, uh, Eugene thinks, Ligia thinks that he is much better in the sack than older brother Bill. Yeah, and and, 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 uh, that makes a a difference. Uh, Once again, I think Eugene is getting some kind of confidence or seeming confidence from uh, this experience and and for a first time maybe feeling that there's something he's better at than his brother. And what a thing to be better at than <laughs> big brother. Yeah. Uh, but that also, as you mentioned, the turn in the relationship is because Eugene is, I think, really hooked on Ligia and all of the complex relationships, stealing the drugs from granddad and, and what have you. But once Bill decide, well, he can't stray from his girlfriend, and he he had rationalized it before, you know, well, she's away, and this is okay. But once he changes, he then begins to look askance at what his younger brother's doing, and then begins to lecture him on what should be proper behavior. And their easygoing fishing days, everything else, just kind of disappear. Yeah, I think this is the big rift and uh, that will never actually be completely uh, healed between them. Uh, it starts here, and and also I think as the, the older brother, Bill, feels a bit challenged too. Well, this is a summer romance, and then all of a sudden, Ligia disappears. Yeah, and uh, for 46 years at least, and uh, uh, a few remains will be found. I don't think we're giving too much away there uh, because that's found out pretty early in the book, and that brings up uh, the great dilemma of the book because Eugene knows that Bill was the last person to see her, uh, that Bill had lied about what happened, that he had taken her to the bus station, and and now uh, Eugene, the younger brother whose life has not gone well, uh, must decide, do I merely keep quiet? Do I go to the law? Or do I confront Bill? Uh, it's, It's a real moment uh, that is made more complex by the fact that Bill has been so good to to uh, Eugene's uh, daughter, uh, more of a father uh, to her than Eugene has been, according to her. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's giving it away because you do go back and forth between the present and 46 years ago. 46 years after the, that summer of 69, Bill is a very successful surgeon, very prominent in the, not just the community but in the state and the medical profession. Eugene started off, had some talent as a writer, but then he crawled into a bottle. His marriage broke up, and Bill, as you said, kind of stepped in and helped save the girl, but also was more of a father figure, and there's clearly tension between the two. Bill doesn't like to get telephone calls from Eugene. Doesn't even like to talk to him. And I don't know if you planned it or not, but it seems like every time they do have a telephone call, one of the first things, somehow Bill wants to ask the question about how much have you had to drink today or, you know, constantly throwing up Eugene's, well, failings. I mean, he, Eugene admits, he, I mean, he knows he's an alcoholic. Everybody in town knows he's an alcoholic. But he becomes obsessed with trying to find out what happened to his mermaid. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the core of the book and the, and the core of the mystery. And as in life, very often it's more complex than at first it seems. Uh, and once again, as, as you're right, I mean, as you bring up uh, Bill, I, I hope he's a complex character to the reader in the sense that, you know, there are those times that we see him almost lording his status over his younger brother. And yet at the same time, he's this man who has uh, taken in his niece not only you know taking her in, but paid for her college, and and has been in many ways uh, an exemplar for the whole community. He does work in Haiti. Uh, he he goes to Kosovo to help people who uh, are injured, and so and yet at the same time, there's a, there's another side of him that I think uh, I hope makes him by being more complex as a character, more human. Well, he is more human, and. You can understand why he's not happy with baby brother. He's a drunk, what he did with his daughter. And I, several, I think, of, of the moving passages in their conversations that they have is Eugene keeps saying, will you give me her telephone number? Can I call her? And Bill said no because the daughter doesn't want to talk to her dad. She doesn't want any contact with him. At, at this point, Ron, would you like to read a I'm going to ask you to read several passages, but there a passage that you'd like to read now? Sure. I think it certainly ties into uh, the, 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 one of the fun aspects of this book, writing this book, was that I got to go back through my old LPs, dust them off, <laughs> and uh, you know, re- recall the music that I was listening to in 1969, because I, I actually not only listened to the radio, as I said earlier, but I did... Uh, uh, start to buy albums. So I'll start with uh, that July I bought an AM FM radio at Pike's Drug Store. Before I'd spent the last hour awake reading or attempting poems and stories in a blue horse notebook. But now I spent much of that time with a finger and thumb on the dial, searching for stations playing the music Legia told me about. The signals drifted in and out between gulfs of static. After a while, I knew where they'd be if they did break through. I'd imagine the pulsing antennas of Fort Wayne and Chicago, New Orleans, and Kansas City. Even on the best stations like WLS in Chicago or WKDA in Nashville, there would be top 40 fluff. But then I'd hear something by the doors or Jefferson Airplane or Big Brother and the Holding Company, even an occasional single by the dead or Jethro Tull. I learned to recognize bands by voices, Morrison or Joplin, or by guitar, Clapton or Hendrix. I was already telling my mother I wanted a turntable with stereo speakers for Christmas. I made lists of albums to buy, groups I'd never heard of before Legia came. But in late July, I found an even better station, not thousands of miles away, but in the next county. Waynesville had a small FM station that played gospel and country all day and bubblegum pop from 7 to 10 in the evenings, except on Wednesday nights. Perhaps the station manager assumed that those who would object were busy beneath the steeples dotting our region's every nook and cranny. But for whatever reason, it was as if someone had hijacked a minibus filled with albums bought in Haight-Ashbury because the DJ had a penchant for album cuts from West Coast bands. 
It was here I first heard the Grateful Dead's China Cat Sunflower and Quicksilver Messenger Services Light Your Windows and the Steve Miller Band's Children of the Future, but also darker tunes, including the darkest of them all, The Doors, The End, with its premonition of what would soon come about in Brentwood and Altamont. Reflecting now on that summer, I realized The Doors were the group I should have listened to most intently. Well, that sets the stage perfectly. That music, it, it's almost like I'd recommend those of folks of my age, or actually any age, iTunes, download some of the iTunes and play this music before you start. I mean, it really, you, you set the mood, but I think it would be fun. It's, as, as I say, I mean, the other great thing that comes, at least for me, and I suspect most people, is I can remember where I heard a song, uh, maybe for the first time, and, and it's almost as like it, it will uh, evoke a memory uh, as well of, of that period. Well, Ron, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with author Ron Rash about his new book, The Risen. Ron, you read a passage that you liked, and I'm going to read one that I like but I don't like. I think it tells about Big Brother and what he's trying to do. Uh, Eugene has gone to Bill's office because the body has been discovered, and he's convinced that if he can't find the truth, he's going to go to the law, he's going to go to the newspaper, what have you. It's after six when Bill comes in. He's clearly exhausted and doesn't speak as we go to his office. He sags back in his leather armchair and closes his eyes. I study the face of a man who spent his afternoon cutting and probing the body of a child. For the best of reasons, of course, and yet... Another surgeon is going to join us in a minute, my brother says as his eyes open. Why? Because you need to hear what he has to say. Not unless he was with you in Ligia at Panther Creek that morning, I answer. And if he comes in here with some bull that drugs caused her to cut her own throat, I'm going straight to Robbie Loudermill, that's the sheriff. He's not going to do that. When a knocking comes to the door, I shake my head. Tell him to go away, I say. All we need to do is talk about what happened, all of it. Bill gets up and returns with a large, red-faced, and then you have florid in italics. This is Eugene thinking, florid. That's the best word to describe him. He's large, but a broad-shouldered large, perhaps a linebacker in high school, even college, though the hand he offers is soft, I guess him to be in his late 50s. Carl Bassinger, he says, and sits down beside me. I understand that you're skeptical about your brother's abilities as a neurosurgeon. I never said that. Oh, Bassinger says, turning to Bill, let's just say that my brother needs to know that what I do saves lives or makes a life worth living, Bill says. He needs to know how well I do my job. And this is Bill trying to shut Eugene up about the past because Bill is afraid, but he needs to hit Eugene over the head about how important he is, not just to himself, but to the community, because every day he saves lives. Yeah, I thought that would really, uh, to me, that made Bill's motivations really complex. I mean, that you're right. I think there's a part of obvious self-interest there. And yet, in, in a way, also makes a valid point. I mean, you know, as, as, as uh, the, the fellow surgeon says, he can do things, uh, take operations that most neurosurgeons would be terrified to try and, and will sometimes be able to do things that uh, other surgeons could not do. And it also is complex for uh, Eugene because the bill is making him feel responsible for you turn me in and this is what's going to happen Uh, there will be children perhaps as well as adults who don't walk again perhaps die because I wasn't there to do the surgery well and not being there to do the surgery early on when the grandfather is pushing Bill into medical school although Bill's going to go there anywhere he makes the comments You've got the talented hands. If you had been the surgeon back when your father had that accident, he'd be alive today. I mean, how about dropping that on a kid? Yeah, well, that's, uh, as I say, what makes the the grandfather so deplorable. Uh, He's quite willing to uh, 
use anything uh, that will get his will to be done. Then, and this this isn't going to give away the end of the plot, but this is an interesting twist, is that Bill does rebel. He falls in love and decides to get married in medical school. Yeah, and I think this this is the you know the difference between the two brothers. And I, I wonder if, in a way, I kind of hope that uh, uh, the reader's birth order might even have uh, some impact on how uh, each of the two brothers is uh, is viewed. Because uh, I think there we see Bill's strength and and uh, and courage. Uh, to rebel against this man who's been so dominant in their lives. I mean, this was such a Southern upper middle class scene is Bill tells his grandfather he's in love and his fiance comes and they're at dinner and it begins a grilling on who are your folks and what have you. And basically, grandfather's a very rude host and Afterwards, Bill announces that they're going to get married, and Grandfather says, fine, you pay for it yourself. I'm going to cut you off. He's been paying all the bills for medical school. And so Bill goes on anyway. And as a result of that, when Granddaddy dies, guess who gets his estate? Ne'er to well Eugene. (laughs) (laughs) It just reinforces the kind of character that, that he was. Oh, yeah, vindictive to the last, <laughs> no doubt about it. And also uh, giving the, uh, the painting uh, to, uh, to uh, the older brother as well, the painting of uh, an autopsy, which uh, certainly evokes memories for Bill and what happened uh, that summer you know, regarding Ligia's fate. But you, start, you, you bring Ligia in first as a body because you have this, the skeleton the rains have gradually eroded, and eventually this blue tarp appears by Panther Creek, and somebody starts to investigate, and they come up with a body. It doesn't take long to figure out. It might be, well, it's, it gets, you know, the anthropologists get a hold of it, and the bone doctors, and they know it's a young woman. And as soon as that comes out, Eugene immediately thinks without anything that that has to be La Gia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, that that is interesting because it it, it you know you uh, I hope the reader feels a little bit well, perhaps on some subconscious level he knew this all the time, uh, you know maybe maybe not, uh, but on a conscious level he he certainly doesn't. He I mean he had believed uh, the older brother, but uh, yeah that that moment suddenly uh, the past rears up and uh, Faulkner's maxim that the past is not dead, it's not even past certainly. Uh, is true in this instance because Lagia and what happened to her in 1969 uh, comes back full force here in the 21st century. And I think this might be a good point for you to read another passage, if you would. Yeah, I, as, as I said earlier, and we were talking about, there was a sense that uh, living in Boiling Springs, that so much was happening, but it wasn't happening in Boiling Springs. It wasn't happening in maybe the small, t- or seemingly it wasn't happening. And uh, this is a scene where uh, I talk a little bit about that feeling. When I look back on the summer of 1969, I marvel at how unconnected Silva seemed from the rest of the United States. To young people raised on the internet, it would be unimaginable. A boy from Silva had been killed in Vietnam and other badly injured, but the war never felt within our world. Neither did the anti-war movement in Berkeley, the civil rights protests spilling into violence in Louisville and New York, or the killings of Sharon Tate and her friends in California. We saw these events on WLS in Asheville, the sole TV station we could pick up, but drained to black and white and behind glass, it was as if we peered into a telescope at some alien world. So little changed in Silva. As they had since my earliest memory, the same stores stood on Main Street, and what was inside varied little. The smallest things had their assigned place. If I went into Pike's Drug Store, candy bars were in front of the counter, comic books on a wire rack to the right. Winkler's Restaurant had the same menu year after year, the same food served on the same green plates. A few things might change. A new brand of sunglasses at Dodd's General Store. Some bell-bottom jeans and Harris clothing. 
But these anomalies, like the first cracks in a house's foundation, went unnoticed. A willed innocence masking the world's injustice and evil, even the town's name a nostalgic turning away from reality, some might say. There would be some truth in such a view, but Silva's residents didn't need to look beyond their own town to know injustice and evil. As Sheriff Loudermilk noted, small towns have a way of giving up their secrets. And when they give them up, as they do in the last three chapters, boy, did they give them up. <laughs> Folks, you will be very surprised. This isn't a no-Henry ending. I'm not, I'm not going to downplay it by that, but it's, it's a real shocker as to what really happened that day on Panther Creek near Silver, North Carolina. Ron, we've talked about addiction, drugs, alcohol, girls, but what about the the question of power? We've got power struggles here and dominance. Uh, Bill, Eugene, grandfather, you bring this in in several ways. Yeah, and, and, and even uh, sometimes... Uh, through the language, just in a sense, who's controlling the language? I think Eugene, at times, uh, there are times when he's almost uh, unable to speak, tongue-tied. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's being constantly reminded or, or made to feel uh, that he doesn't have that. And I think, in some ways, he begins to to, to find that power because uh, of you know uh, the freedom that he's or seeming freedom he's uh, experienced with Ligia and. But um, he, he seems to be someone who uh, has the irony being that he probably is better with words than any of these people, yet at the same time, uh, uh, they control the language through most of the book. Okay. Have you got another passage you'd like to read for us? Well, I can read just the opening. It's, it's very brief, but uh, that's where the body's discovered. And, and one, one interesting aspect, uh, as I, I did, re I had to do research, so I had to find out uh, how enough of the body or the skeleton would be, uh, would remain, uh, to, you know, after 46 years. So I had, uh, we, we have a body farm at Western and uh, some forensics teachers and I actually uh, talked to one and and he kind of helped me with that uh, and uh, so this is but this is the opening and I think it once again that idea of the mermaid comes through uh, because this is Legia she is waiting each spring the hard rains come and the creek rises and quickens and more of the bank peels off silting the water brown and bringing to light another layer of dark earth Decades pass. She is patient, shelled inside the blue tarp. Each spring, the water laps closer, paling roots, loosening stones, scuffing and smoothing. She is waiting, and one day a bit of blue appears in the bank, and then more blue. The rain pauses and the sun appears, but she is ready now, and the bank trembles a moment and heaves and the strands of tarp unfurl, and she spills into the stream and is free. Bits of bone gather in an eddy, form a brief necklace. The current moves on toward the sea. And as you know, when we get to the end of the book, of course, that idea of the mermaid returning to the sea will become uh, important. Well, what did you find out from the body farm folks? Well, I found out that I, I, the body would need to be wrapped in, in a blue tarp, and uh, certain kinds of uh, soil would uh, cause the body to decay more or less. And I actually got an invite to, to go to the body farm, which I declined. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, as a writer, uh, uh, you, I want to, to get those details as right as possible, but... Uh, sometimes you miss things, but but even little things like that I think are important because the reader, when the reader gets something that just jars with reality, you know, for instance, if I put a a swordfish in in the French Broad River, uh, <laughs> that's not going to, uh, you know, the reader's going it's going to get the reader out of uh, what a book is, a kind of waking dream, and uh, uh, but the problem, you know, I always get something wrong when I. You know, doing you know, particularly when I'm writing about say 1918, I might, uh, and I always have someone write an angry letter that uh, I I didn't realize that this kind of uh, hearing aid was not invented in 1917, but 1919, <laughs> that kind of thing. I even had some uh, uh, 
Ghostbusters go up to a, a place where I had a scene and tell me that a ghost had told them that I got it wrong, which I found uh, interesting to say the least. Um, well, you know, I love to garden, and about every third book I pick up that's set in the South, they've got the wrong plants blooming at the wrong time of the year. You know, it just, and it drives me crazy. I mean, and these are usually written by Southerners. I, I said, all you got to do is walk out in your garden, and you know that chrysanthemums are not blooming at Easter time. You know, yeah. that just doesn't yeah. happen. Uh, azaleas are not blooming in the fall with the hydrangeas. And also, camellias don't have a scent. That's the, the other thing they talk about. Anyway, uh, but back to your your detail. Why a blue tarp? Why did it have to be blue? I thought that would evoke the sea, uh, the idea of the blue sea, and, and also the tarp, once again, by, by the body being wrapped in a tarp, that would really help preserve what was within it. So that's where I, you know, as I, when I talked to uh, uh, my friend at, at Western about those details, he said, this is how you would do it. Okay, well, that, that, I, I, just, yeah. I just got curious. Yeah. Um, so, and you didn't go to the body farm. No, no, uh, I didn't. I, that was, I mean, people talk about my being a dark writer at times, but I, I, that was just something I, I, I was a little bit queasy about. <laughs> well, sometimes you do write dark, but then, particularly in your short stories, oh man, I love your humor. Yeah, well, I, I people are sometimes surprised that I'm actually, you know, funny, at, or can be, and yeah, but I'm glad you, yeah, you know, we've talked about the new Jesus and the Cadillacs and. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hope even in my darker book, not so much in Arisen, but and certainly in a, a Serena, I think I wrote some of my funniest scenes with those loggers talking about, uh, you know, uh, their philosophy of uh, wearing bright colors because nature did that and kept would keep them from, you know, lightning and, yeah. Well, what's, what is next for Ron Rash? I'm writing stories again, and uh, that's my favorite form, and... Um, I'm, I'm, that's my next book, uh, which is, is a ways off, uh, will be a, a collection of short stories. Uh, every time I finish a novel, I, I swear to myself and to other people I'll never do another one. But unfortunately, or fortunately, they, they come unbidden. And uh, when, a, when a book comes, uh, I, I just can't stop uh, write, thinking about it till I write it. And, and with this book, one of the most interesting things was... There was a murder in some ways like this uh, when uh, about 30 years ago near where I was living. And after it happened and it became clear no one was going to be charged, there were two suspects, two men, and uh, a young woman had been killed. Uh, once it became clear that they didn't really have any evidence or about who, who it could have been, direct evidence, uh, suspicions, yes, but no evidence, I started having a dream about every maybe every three or four months that I had murdered someone, not not this young woman who had actually been murdered. but uh, And it, this went on for years, and, and finally when I wrote this book, the dream stopped. Well, yeah. it, when, you, when you said, you, you know, the novels just come upon you, and if, if you read the opening passage, which you did, I could see this maybe, did this start out as a short story, or did this start? It did. It did. It started as as many of my novels have, uh, and uh, that's 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 that. There's that interesting moment where I suddenly realize that no, you know, I, this is more than a short story. There's more here, and to really tell the story in the best way, uh, I have to to write a novel. And so certainly that that came because I thought at first uh, it, it would be maybe a, a long short story, maybe thirty or forty pages, but then it evolved. And and of course. Ron has won prizes on both sides of the Atlantic for short stories. He's been on the New York Times bestseller list, and he has chosen to spend his adult life in Western North Carolina. And again, Ron, my hat's off to you, but I mean, I just, I know too many Southern authors who are, not personally, who have made it big, who decide to leave their roots for the big city, and their 15 minutes are perhaps more of fame. And, uh, you hadn't done that. You're still the young man from Boiling Springs, North Carolina. Well, I've got people that would uh, 
take care of me if I got above my raising, as they say, <laughs> in western North Carolina, starting with my sister and brother uh, who would. Uh, but, yeah, you know, and uh, I think a lot of what I write, uh, you know the story of my father um, uh, working at Eureka Mill in Chester, South Carolina, meeting my mother there. And I feel a real obligation uh, as a writer to, to be true to their world, to write about their world. And even if I'm not writing directly about say, my parents or, or relatives who've lived in the western North Carolina mountains so many generations, I think I'm honoring their place, that, you know, this I can find work, you know, the stories that someone in China or France, uh, as they have, uh, will read and, and, and sense that, yes, this is these people are uh, so much like me, or their stories ring true, or their stories have value. So, so certainly, I, it, it is important to me to uh, to write about the region as honestly as I can. I don't want to sentimentalize it, but uh, my my goal as a writer has always been that people will see my characters as being human and complex. Well, there's there's no question that they are. But in some ways, you're also writing about a world that is either disappearing or has disappeared. Um, how big is Sylvia today? Oh, that would be a good question. I suspect, uh, I, now I'm just guessing, I would say maybe at the most 5,000 people. So I may it, be wrong it, about it, that. It really hasn't changed that much. It um, hasn't. And, and Bowling Springs has not changed hugely uh, where I grew up. And uh, it's changed some, but... Um, you know, it's yeah. still, I, I can recognize it. Well, you know, just ha- having gone to Davidson and you had lots of kids from all over North Carolina and Cary or well, even the little town of David. I mean, some of those places are changed beyond recognition. And the same, of course, is true in South Carolina. And it's not always becoming a suburb of Charlotte, as Davidson has done in Cary for Raleigh. But the small towns almost disappearing. It's whether it's the mill closing or whether it's the agriculture shifting and people now shopping in the big towns instead of on Main Street. There is a world in the South that is, I think, not just disappearing. In many cases, it has disappeared. But you brought it back. This is 19... And and I hope also, uh, uh, and I think this is one one impetus for writing, is also just the language, Uh, you know, the beautiful folk language that I certainly grew up with. And many people in the south uh, which is so so rich in metaphor uh you know my uncle once told me uh he saw a scantily clad young woman we were in boone north carolina and he turned to me and said that girl hasn't got enough clothes on to wad a shotgun (laughs) (laughs) which is brilliant and 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 i always get really irritated when uh particularly people in appalachia are depicted as you know these people who can hardly utter a word They're, they're grunting but what I found, and, I, and this is true, I think, of folk languages everywhere, whether it's Gullah or Cajun uh, or uh, Appalachian, is uh, it's very sophisticated. I mean, to make a simile, uh, a person has to be intelligent because you're taking two unalike things and, and suddenly drawing a parallel. And I, uh, I, I hate to see that language uh, disappear. You can't. You can't text that language no and 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 just the beauty of the rhythm of how something's said uh which i can i was very lucky i spent so much time with my grandmother on her farm near boone uh as a child and and, and adolescent that i really got to hear that older language and uh, uh and, and sometimes it would really be interesting because some of it i would later see in shakespeare you know words such as leaf or victuals uh uh, that had been brought over from from Britain uh, and and preserved. Uh, so, I, I've always had an ear uh, that I've, I've loved to uh, to hear that language. And I hope one thing that you know, uh, not just my books, but Robert Morgan, Lee Smith, that that we uh, we kind of honor that language and and make in some ways an attempt to uh, preserve it. Did your grandmother ever say you had Molly grubs? No, I didn't hear that. That's a good one though. <laughs> well. <laughs> It was my grand. When I'd have a stomach ache as a kid, my grandfather would say, "He's got the molly grubs," and of course, that's an old word for colic. Oh wow! Uh, well, I may use that in my next book. That's good. 
And what about a lariat to catch meddlers? No, man, you've got some good ones. Uh, yeah, those those uh, came from my granddad. Wow. So, anyway, Ron, we're about to run out of time. Are there any last words you'd like to have for our listeners before we sign off? Uh, well, I, I I feel like I've had great support from the region as a writer and and from you certainly, uh, and and I really appreciate that. And uh, I think uh, I feel very blessed and, and and fortunate. It's something I've loved to do. I wanted to do well um, uh, for decades. Uh, that some people have found merit in it. That I didn't waste my time after all. Well. I'll back at you because we're blessed and fortunate to have you writing about the American South and particularly the mountains of the Carolinas. Ron Rash, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's always a pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I'll always say or usually say that I did, but I especially enjoyed today's program. Ron Rash is... He is just such an incredible person. Great author, teacher, conversationalist. I could talk to him for three hours. The Risen is his latest, always set in, like his others, in Western North Carolina, but the family dynamics, the small town atmosphere, he's captured a world that's really very special. And I think we ought to be grateful for that. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.